Ah. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. We are living in very perilous times. Our age, the age that we're in, is an evil age characterized by wickedness, characterized by a world of people who, for the most part, are doing what seems right in their own eyes. We're in a world where everyone claims to be a Christian, but yet the reality is if you really, really look around and look hard, there's not much evidence that all who claim to be Christians actually know God. I believe that the greatest need in this age and really in any age is to know God better. And I know that that is very core in terms of the vision at Epiphany. Uh, we want to be a group of people who make it our life's dedication to know God and to make him known to others. And so today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6, which is really a good springboard to gaining insight into the person, the character of God. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 10. This is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, 
but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, you are holy. You are holy. You are the God of wonders beyond our galaxy. And the universe declares your majesty. You are holy and you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And Father, it's amazing that you have stooped so low so as to engage with us, to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. As we get into the text today, Father, we pray that the spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the son of God. And we pray that you would do it for the sake of his name. Amen. Jordan, I'm gonna need you to grab my bag, which is right behind you, behind the guitar. Thanks. I want you to, thank you. if you can, do me a favor and try to visualize Isaiah. I want you to walk with me. Step into the life of this gentleman, Isaiah. We're gonna go all the way back to the year 740 BC. And we're gonna look at Isaiah, the son of Amos. One of the things that we'll see when we look at him is that he was a very privileged man. He had a very good education. It's obvious from his writings, from his poetic skills, that he had a serious gift with the pen. He was privileged, and we know this because he interacted with kings, the greatest men in his whole society. He lived amongst and actually talk face to face with them. He was a gifted writer because we see in 2 Chronicles 26-22 that he's credited with writing the biography of King Uzziah. Isaiah knew that King Uzziah was a godly king, a king who had received the throne at the age of 16 and reigned for 52 years. Isaiah knew that Uzziah was a king that God had given great success to, great prosperity to, 
great military victories. But Isaiah also knew that Uzziah did not finish well because he knew that at the end of Uzziah's life, he got proud in his riches. He got proud in the favor that God had upon him. And he got so proud that he overstepped his bounds. And he figured because he was the king, there was nothing outside of the scope of what he could do. And so one day we learn in 2 Chronicles 26, Uzziah just barged up into the temple of God. <laughs> like, I'm going to offer up some incense to God. He didn't realize that it's a dangerous thing to run up into the presence of God in any way you think you can. And so the priest went into the temple and tried to stop him and said, Uzziah, what are you doing? You can't, what are you doing? This is this only for the priest to do. And we learned that Uzziah got angry. And just as he got angry and was about to protest, blam, leprosy broke out on his forehead. He was immediately cast out of the temple and lived the rest of his days lonely as a leper. So Isaiah knew this king Uzziah. Isaiah also knew that the time that he was living in was a very turbulent time. Even though there was financial prosperity in Judah at the time, there were threats to that prosperity all around. There were enemies, other countries, who were preparing to invade. And so, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had an experience that would forever change his life. In verse 1, we see that without warning, Isaiah is snatched into the immediate presence of God. It's probably not the temple in Jerusalem being spoken of in this verse, but more likely the heavenly temple that the Apostle John spoke of in Revelations chapter 4. Nevertheless, Isaiah is in the presence of God, and he's about to see something that absolutely blows his mind. As he tries to perhaps get his bearings together, he notices that there's a robe. And as he traces this robe up, he sees the Lord. Perhaps he thinks it's a dream. Perhaps he thinks it's a vision. Perhaps he has no idea what to think at that moment. But whatever's going on in his mind, he sees the Lord and he knows that it's the Lord. Now, as he's rocked off of the sight 
of the Lord. He notices as he continues to look up, he sees these beings. And these beings catch his attention because they're burning. (laughs) They're burning ones. Seraphim, burning ones. And they're strange creatures. He notices that they have wings. And he notices that only two of them are being used to fly. Two of them are being used to cover their feet. And then two others are being used to cover their eyes. Perhaps he wondered why they had so many wings. Whatever the reason, it must have had something to do with what came out of their mouth next. One called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah, as a Hebrew poet, (laughs) is very familiar with Hebrew language and poetic expression. And so the repetition of holy, holy, holy would have had a serious significance to Isaiah. Not holy, not holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. Isaiah would have known that God, no attribute of God is ever spoken of in this way in all of the Torah. God is never called Love, love, love. He's never called wrath, 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 or justice, 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 faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. But here he's called holy, holy, holy. I'm assuming that Isaiah had some kind of physical reaction or response to what was being said. If it wasn't coming from within, it was definitely coming from without because we see that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And so Isaiah is in the midst of an earthquake (laughs) being caused by this voice, the voice of this burning one who's flying. And when he saw the smoke, maybe he thought back to Exodus chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, which says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Maybe... When he saw the smoke and felt the trembles, he thought about what the people of Israel said in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. 
Maybe Isaiah is thinking about judgment when he sees the smoke and feels the trembles. Perhaps that's why he says what he says next. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah knew. He knew that if you, if anybody saw God, they were not supposed to live. He knew Exodus 33:20, which says, where God said, No man shall see me and live. He had the expectation that to come into the presence of God meant death. And so he pronounces a curse upon himself. He pronounces doom upon himself. He announces, I'm, I'm, I'm undone. I'm lost. I'm ruined, falling apart. For the first time, Isaiah has seen the Lord for who he really is in all his holiness, in all his glory, in all his splendor. And so for the first time, Isaiah actually sees himself for who he is in all his sinfulness, in all his depravity, in all his griminess. And not only does he see his own sinfulness, but he sees the sinfulness of the people, of the community around him. Isaiah doesn't think he's supposed to live. He can't help but think that God is going to kill him. His eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And so perhaps as he contemplates what the afterlife is like, because he knows he's going to die, maybe he's thinking about what is Sheol really all about. As he considers this, out of his peripheral vision, he sees the seraphim go from where he was and fly and grab something. And maybe at that point he's thinking, okay, what's he grabbing and what's he going to do with it? <laughs> and he notices that the, this being grabs a fiery coal from off the altar and begins to approach him with it. Maybe he's thinking, I wish I could go out some other way <laughs> than whatever this burning one is about to do with this coal in his hand. And as the being approaches him and gets closer and closer, maybe Isaiah embraced himself or braced himself to, to, for, for whatever was about to happen next. And maybe he smells the smell from the coals as it approaches his face. And as he braces himself, he feels the heat of the coal on his lips. And maybe he smells the burning of the flesh of his lips. And then... He gets the most amazing surprise. 
This being said something that Isaiah did not expect. This being said, behold, this has touched your lips. Not you're going to die now. But behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. How surprising is that? The sin that he had felt, the woe that he knew was due to him, the curse that he knew was due to him, had been taken care of. His guilt had been taken away. As he tries to take it all in, (laughs) he looks back up to the throne and he hears a voice. He hears the voice of the Lord. In the council, within the council of God, there's a conversation going on. And the voice says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah is amazed. He's amazed at the opportunity. Look at the grace of God. Not only has God not killed him, but now God is asking an open-ended question. And Isaiah's not even going to look around to see if anybody else is going to answer it first. I'll go. Here I am. Send me. I mean, after all, I should be dead. After all, I came into the presence of the Holy One, and I lived. I have to go. What do you want me to do? Where am I going? I'll go. Here I am. Send me. And then God gives Isaiah a message for Israel. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, perhaps in his excitement at God commissioning him to go, He doesn't even understand necessarily everything that's being said. However, given what he just experienced, he's going to go. And he's going to do exactly what God tells him to do. And he's going to say whatever God tells him to say. After all, he can't help it. He's seen the Lord. And so my question for us today is... Simply, do you see him? Do you see him? I want to describe a great reality in verses 1 to 4. A grave response in verse 5. A gracious remedy in verses 6 and 7 and a grim request in verses 8 to 10. A great reality in verse 1 to 4, a grave response in verse 5, a gracious remedy in verses 6 and 7, and a grim request in verses 8 to 10. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah was confronted with the immediate presence of God where the glory of God shone brightly and was seen clearly. Whenever we see glory, it always brings us back to the idea of the weightiness of God, the, the heaviness of the reality of God. It brings us back to this picture of the Shekinah glory of God falling upon the temple, so bright, so radiant, that to approach it would be death. The surprising reality that we find in the New Testament <laughs> is that Isaiah saw none other than Jesus Christ. John chapter 12, verse 37 to 41 says this concerning Jesus. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Isaiah is having none other than an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ. He's seeing Jesus. See, we need to, we, you know, we've been going through Jesus Unplugged, right? One of the main things that have been stressed is that we need to get out of our minds our own notions of who Jesus is and accept what the scriptures proclaim about this Jesus. This Jesus is high and lifted up. Isaiah uses the same term, high and lifted up, in Isaiah 57, 15. It says, thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I know we see Jesus in the manger. I know we see Jesus walking the earth. Like Mace pointed out, a man Driscoll, <laughs> this idea of him skipping through the lilies with his disciples, this glorified hippie <laughs> doing good stuff as he trounces around the earth. 
But we have to see Jesus as the one who is high and lifted up. The one who inhabits eternity, the eternal one, the self-existent one, the one who was not created, the uncreated one, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who is the great I am. <laughs> See, everybody else, we say, well, I am because my mother was, and my mother was because my grandmom was, and my grandmom was because her mother, and so, and so on and so forth, all the way back. But God says, I am because I am. <laughs> that means there's none before him. This is the Jesus we're talking about. And this is the Jesus that Isaiah saw. Do we see his glory this morning? Do we see him? Understand, when we talk about seeing the glory of Jesus, we're not talking about by sight, but we're talking about by faith. I want to make that clear. I'm not asking you if you're having some kind of visions or dreams about Jesus this morning. I'm asking if, I'm asking, are you embracing Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures by faith? Because one of the things we learn from the scriptures is that Sight alone never brought anybody to Jesus. There are a whole bunch of people who walked around on the earth with Jesus who saw him. But they did not believe in him. A lot of times we think, man, what if we were just back, if only we were back then. If I lived back then and saw him, then I would believe. No, you don't understand the, true, the nature of, of true belief. The nature of faith is that faith is a supernatural thing. It's a supernatural principle that is imparted into the heart by God. And unless that, and this is what we've been talking about as we've been going through John, unless that principle is imparted in your heart, you'll never see Jesus. You'll only see him on a natural level. You'll only see him for what he might be able to give to you. You'll only see him maybe as a good dude. <laughs> but it's, it's when God has implanted faith in our hearts that we're able to see his glory. Jesus said in John chapter 6, 35 to 37, he said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. This is the Lord. He's, he's like, look, you've seen me. You're looking at me. You're looking at the second person of the Trinity. But you still don't believe. Why? It's in, in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those who have been given to Jesus by the Father receive the gift of faith. And with that gift of faith, with the eyes of faith, their eyes are open to behold Jesus and see him as beautiful, to see him as an all-sufficient savior, and then embrace him and love him and follow him forever. But it only comes if you have eyes to see. Unbelievers do not see the glory of Christ. Unbelievers do not see anything glorious about Jesus. This is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, 
It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers don't see anything glorious about Jesus. Their minds are blinded by Satan. Do you see him today? (laughs) My goodness, do you see him, y'all? When we look at these creatures, I want to read this quote from R.C. Sproul concerning the creatures. You know, it's interesting because when, when we, see, we see these beings with all of these wings, one of the things we know about God is that God never wastes anything. <laughs> so everything that God creates, he creates for a purpose. <laughs> so it's not like these wings are just some extra <laughs> appendage <laughs> with no good use to them. <laughs> like, they have a purpose. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. He says, The seraphim have a second pair of wings, and the second pair is used to cover their feet. This equipment is not intended as a sort of angelic shoe to protect the soles of their feet or to facilitate walking in the heavenly temple. The covering of the feet is for a different reason, a reason reminiscent of Moses' experience with the burning bush. And he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. When the Lord had uh, Moses at the burning bush, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said to him, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Sproul continues, God commanded Moses to take off his shoes. Moses was standing on holy ground. The ground was made holy by the presence of God. The act of removing the shoes was a symbol of Moses' recognition that he was of the earth, earthy. Human feet, sometimes called feet of clay, symbolize our creatureliness. It is our feet that link us to the earth. The seraphim are not of the earth. Their feet are not made of clay. As angels, they're spirit beings. Nevertheless, they remain creatures. And the imagery of Isaiah's vision suggests that they too must cover their feet, acknowledging their creatureliness in the exalted presence of God. These beings that were flying around, they were burning ones. Man, these are perfect, sinless beings. And they still got to cover their eyes. They still have to cover their eyes in the sight of the king of glory. They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. John Piper describes the glory of God this way. He says, (laughs) and I love this, God's glory is his holiness gone public. (laughs) His holiness gone public. It's everything 
that he is in himself, that he has been for all eternity on the low before he ever created anything publicized, put out there for everybody to see it. Mm, his holiness going public. And it's hard to talk about glory in these days, these times that we're living in, because glory is such a weighty thing. We live in such trivial times today. We live in an age of chicken noodle soup and shake them Skittles and a whole bunch of other nonsense, stuff that has no eternal value whatsoever, endless amusements, endless diversions, endless distractions to keep, keep us away from the things we should really be focusing on. It's hard to talk about glory in these days and times. It says in verse 4 that the, the smoke filled the temple. This is reminiscent of Psalm 97, verses 2 to 5. Listen to this description of God in 97, Psalm 97, verses 2 through 5. It says, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. I have a question. Is this the God that you worship? Is this the God that you worship? Oftentimes we think of idolatry as simply bowing down to a block of wood. The root of idolatry is replacing the true God with a God of our own imagination. Taking the true God and what Romans 1 speaks of as exchanging his glory <laughs> for images, for cheap copies, cheap imitations. Ah, we live in such an idolatrous time. Such an idolatrous time. We, we, have, we have become content to simply make up our own ideas about God. A big part of that is relativism. Relativism. This idea that my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's what I believe in. That's what you believe in. So I believe what I believe in. You believe what you believe in. We just believe what we believe. That mindset has, that is so unbiblical. The Bible is our standard of truth. It's an objective standard of truth. So it's not my opinion. It's what has God said. And this, this spirit of relativism has invaded the church. You can't even approach anybody anymore with the scriptures. You, you, try, to, I'm talk, you, like you try to talk to a believer out of the text. And just like, but this is what it says. Oh, yeah, but that's, that's what you believe. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean what I believe? It's what God has said. Yeah. 
And so what, so, so what we, and, and relativism is just, a, it's a symptom of the idolatry that has gripped our land. Because we don't want, if truth be told, sinners do not want the real God as he has revealed himself. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Sinners do not want the real God as he has revealed himself. He's too, he's too scary. He's too dangerous. And so what we do is we come up with our own notions of God. This is the, this is the height of arrogance. <laughs> and it's the essence of idolatry. It's funny because we talk about, a lot of times we talk about intimacy with God. And amen, intimacy with God is a good thing. But at times I wonder, like, do we really know what we're asking for when we talk about being intimate with God? Because when I look at the scriptures, everybody who had a true encounter with the glory of God did not want to be close to him, but wanted him to get away from them. This is what, this is what we, I remember Deuce alluded to this a few weeks back, uh, Peter. Peter and Luke. Peter and Luke 5, verse 8, when he was confronted with the reality of the glory and holiness of Christ, Peter said, away from me. I'm a sinful man. And so that brings me to the second point, which is the grave response in verse 5. The grave response. I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response of pronouncing woe upon himself is similar to the response of Israel in Numbers chapter 17, verses 12 to 13, when it says, the people of Israel said to Moses, behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? What Isaiah recognized and what we need to recognize is that God's holiness presents a problem for our sin. And that's why we spend most of our lives running from God. It's kind of like when you're on the highway and you're just cruising along doing your thing, may or may not be speeding. Me, I'm, I'm not speeding, personally. Usually. But even if I'm not, when a cop pulls up behind me and is just riding, you get this uneasy feeling, even if you're not doing anything wrong. And you just want him to go on his way. You'll slow down. And you can't, I know, I can't even focus. I can't even really listen to my music. Because I always got one eye in the rear view. That's how it is with the Lord. The Lord exposes our sin. When we see him for who he is, we see ourselves for who we really are. And it makes us uncomfortable because we recognize, or we should recognize, like Isaiah recognized, that we're unclean. 
See, we can front before people, but we can't front before God. We can present a facade of holiness before people. And in these days, the standard's not very high. So as long as we're not doing the crazy, crazy stuff, we look all right in this depraved society. But we can't hide from God. We can't front before God. When Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, we could talk about lips and, and how they are oftentimes throughout scriptures indicative of uh, the spiritual state <laughs> out of the abundance of the mouth or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But I think here the emphasis is really not necessarily on lips as much as it's on unclean. <laughs> because that's a picture of being ceremonially unclean. In other words, not fit for worship. Not fit to be in the presence of God. God was meticulous <laughs> about how he was to be approached in the Old Testament. And you could not as Uzziah found out, as Nadab and Abihu found out in Leviticus 10, you can't just come up in God's presence any kind of way you want because he's holy. And it's not up to us to determine how we're going to approach God. It's up to God to determine how we are to approach him. And so Isaiah recognizes that he's unclean, and that's what, that's what every Christian recognizes. We all recognize, man, God is holy. Look at Jesus. He's sinless. The next step should be, woe is me. I need a savior. See, oftentimes we want to go, we want to go from the, we want to skip past the grave response. We want to go from the, the, the great reality straight to the gracious remedy. And so what you have when that's the case, you have people proclaiming guilt being taken away when there hasn't even been a recognition of guilt. You have good news being proclaimed when there hasn't even really been any bad news. Like, how are you going to tell me about the good news of my sins being forgiven when I don't even, I don't even have a category for that? I don't even have a category for needing to be forgiven. I feel like I'm a good dude. It's the law of God that produces the grave response. It's the holy law of God that produces the grave response. And notice something. Notice that God doesn't, he doesn't tell, you know, when Isaiah says, woe is me, God doesn't say, oh, come on, Isaiah, lighten up. Take it easy. Come on. You have low self-esteem, Isaiah. <laughs> he doesn't say that. You're being too hard on yourself. No. No, what God does is he deals with the problem. He doesn't deny the problem. He deals with the problem. That's why we see the gracious remedy in verses 6 and 7. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. This being the seraphim flies to the altar, the altar being the picture of the place of sacrifice for sin. God deals with the problem that, our, that his holiness presents to our sinfulness, not by overlooking it, but by providing a sacrifice, by providing uh, an atonement. A.W. Pink says this, God has often forgiven sinners, but he never forgives sin. <laughs> the sinner is only forgiven on the grounds of another bearing his punishment. You get that? God, God never forgives sin. God deals with sin. Wherever sin appears, God punishes it. The only question is who's going to take the punishment, not whether or not there will be punishment. All other belief systems believe in some way in a God that does not actually deal with sin in this way. What the seraphim does is he applies this coal, this, which is a symbol of purification. He applies it to the very place that Isaiah identified. I want to read this second quote. It says from Sproul, it says, The seraph pressed the white hot coal to the lips of the prophet and seared them. The lips are one of the most sensitive parts of the human flesh the meeting point of the kiss. Here Isaiah felt the holy flame burning his mouth. The acrid smell of burning flesh filled his nostrils, but that sensation was dulled by the excruciating pain of the heat. This was a severe mercy, a painful act of cleansing. Isaiah's wound was being cauterized. The dirt in his mouth was being burned away. He was refined by holy fire. In this divine act of cleansing, Isaiah experienced a forgiveness that went beyond the purification of his lips. He was cleansed throughout, forgiven to the core, but not without the awful pain of repentance. He went beyond cheap grace and the easy utterance, I'm sorry. He was in mourning for his sin, overcome with moral grief, and God sent an angel to heal him. His sin was taken away, yeah, yeah. God deals with our sin. Pete, what it says about Christ in this capacity, in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm sorry, chapter 9, 11 to 14, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what we see. We see a, we see a purification of Isaiah's lips that speaks to a purification. It points forward to, you know, anytime you have an altar, you have blood and you have fire. The blood and the fire that Isaiah witnessed, it points forward to the purifying blood of Christ and the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit who cleanses us and purifies us when we trust in Jesus. We all come the same way. We see his greatness. We recognize our sin in light of his greatness. And then we cry out to God, save us. And the only way anybody has ever been saved has been through looking not to ourselves and what we can do, but looking to the sacrifice that has been made. And the most amazing thing about this whole text is that the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, took on human flesh. And he came and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And God did not say to Jesus, just let them slide. Jesus did not say to God the Father, you know what, God, you're being too hard on them. No. Jesus came to honor his father, and he bore the full punishment of our sin in himself. And it vindicated God. It vindicated God's way. It showed that God is a just God. He's not just going to wink at sin. He's not just going to let it slide. But he's also a God of great love. And because of that love, he sent his son to die for our sins. Have you embraced this Jesus this morning? In verses 8 to 10, we see a grim request. And the reason I call it a grim request is because what we find out later is that God sent Isaiah to speak to a group of people who were not going to listen to him. See, if we, if we had our way, if, if, you know, if I had my way, after the atonement, after his guilt is taken away and God tells Isaiah to go, it's going to be peaches and cream. He's going to ride off into the sunset with a smile on his face. Tradition says that Isaiah was sawed in half. Isaiah had a life of <laughs> serious persecution ahead of him. And in some way, that's true of every believer. We're called to the way of the cross. We're called to the narrow road, which is a hard road. We're called to trials, difficulty. The idea of a, a Christian life minus suffering is not biblical Christianity. Anytime we see glory in the New Testament, somewhere around is usually suffering. <laughs> Suffering is usually in the context. Charles Spurgeon said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers on earth. We live in a day where 
the cross has been taken, the way of the cross has been taken out of the pulpit. We want to proclaim the way of the cross. And the task is difficult. Pro- living for God is difficult. <laughs> living for God is difficult, especially in the midst of a godless society. Especially when we have to deal with indwelling sin within our own selves. Especially when we have to deal with an enemy, Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The Christian life is hard. And the only thing that's going to be proper motivation for living it out is knowing that our guilt has been taken away. Our sin has been atoned for. Continually pointing back to Christ, continually looking back to the gospel and what God has already done in the past for hope for what he will do in the future. Otherwise, we're going to burn out. Otherwise, we're not going to be committed to the mission. A lot of people come seemingly come on board with the mission, but they haven't actually received the call. <laughs> they haven't received the go. <laughs> Have you been called? You're only going to be able to persevere in this if you know that you're called. (laughs) Otherwise, it's a wrap. You might be around for a while, but eventually you're going to fall off. We're not any better than our Lord Jesus. His way was the way of the cross. He said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. No servant's greater than his master. So why should we be, we shouldn't be surprised. Have you been sent? Have you seen, first of all, have you seen him? (laughs) That's the first thing. Have you seen him? Have you seen yourself in light of him? Have you embraced the call? And have you gone? Are you going? (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we worship you. We bless your holy name this morning. God, we praise you for your glory. God, we pray that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you. Grow us in our understanding of Christ. To know you is eternal life, Father. God, I pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Lord, help us to embrace the hard road. Help us to embrace the trials, knowing that the Spirit helps us in our weakness and knowing that you promise to be with us until the very end of the age. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning and we thank you that you have taken away all of our guilt. You've taken away all of our sin. There's no wrath for us whatsoever, no condemnation. You've taken it all. You drank the cup of wrath dry. For us, Lord Jesus. Lord, would you be enough for us this morning? 
Would you and you alone satisfy us and help us to live it out in our lives and to share it with others? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me pray for our brother. Lord God, thank you for Shai. Um, thank you for um, your hand being on him. Thank you for, Lord God, your strength in his life to give him the gut of the Christian life. Lord God, thank you um, for the pills that you've allowed him to swallow. Lord God, thank you for his singleness and how you're walking him with you in his singleness as an example to many single brothers. Lord God, I pray that you would keep him that you would keep him under the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, that you would overwhelm him with the reality of Jesus consistently. Lord God, and that you would blast doors open for him to go through to continue on mission with you, Lord God. God, I pray that he would not ever become depressed by the way of the cross. Pray that he would never become frustrated with the hard road that you've called him to, but thank you for the beauty, Lord God, because you said, I, I, I contend that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Lord God, and you said in your word, Lord God, that you would continue to allow trials to come our way, Lord God, in order that the glory of Christ may pierce through our mortal flesh. So, Lord God, in order that um, we may look forward to the reality when uh, mortality puts on immortality. So, God, I pray for my brother, Lord God. I pray that, that more would, would, would arise in our midst, Lord God. Um, men, especially, Lord God, we pray for our sisters. We love our sisters. But there's a drought of men, Lord God. And I just pray in Jesus' name that you would um, strengthen many examples, a flood of examples of, 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 of men who love Jesus, who are blown away by your kingdom, who are in love with you and who have tasted and seen that Jesus is good. Lord God, raise up in our generation men, God, who, who, who are absolutely, unadulterately, fearless, fearless of this world. But we, Because we know, Lord God, that the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and understanding is fear of God. So God, raise up a, a generation of God-fearers. God, who are pumping their fists for kingdom glory, Lord God, not self-glory, not self-attainment, not, not getting their name out there, not their 15 minutes of fame, Lord God, but cats that are blown away and are passionate about the truth of Jesus Christ and can't sleep at night because you're rocking them, Lord God, who wake up in the morning thinking about you, Lord God, who go to bed, who are just haunted and plagued by the glory of the living Jesus Christ. God, we need it in our generation, God. We need it when we have it in this place, God. And so, God, I pray in Christ's name that we would love the things that are closest to your heart. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Let's big up God. Let's big up God as we, as we, as we get ready for, to worship the Lord through communion. How many of you were touched by the reality of the glory of God just now? Amen.